You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this week's special edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. Today's session is the next in a series we are calling Legends of Wealth Tech. Over the past few months, we have been inviting people on our podcast but a demonstrated track record of innovation and industry leadership. We find these conversations with people who have made a significant difference in the advisory business over the long haul to be enlightening and a history lesson as, and as well as guidance for the next generation of innovators and leaders. Today, we will talk to someone I've known and respected since we first met in the 1990s. Dare I say that out loud? Our guest today is Roger Paradiso. Roger created the concept of multiple discipline accounts, commonly known as MDAs way back when. He'll talk about that, I'm sure. Unified managed accounts. You probably heard of the UMA. He had a lot to do with it. In fact, I think he invented it. He's been uh, at the point of the spear in moving our industry from mutual funds to separately managed accounts to multiple discipline accounts to UMAs and beyond. He's still at it. Roger is the head of product solutions at Franklin Templeton and executive chairman of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Roger has been acknowledged with the Money Management Institute's highest honor, Advisory Solutions Pioneer Award winner in, in 2014. And in 2016, he uh, was awarded the MMI All-Star Achiever Award. He also served as chairman of the MMI board. So, Roger, I'll let you fill in on the details of the uh, work you've been engaged in over the years. So with that, let me welcome you to Wealth Tech on Deck. Great to have you join us and talk about the important work you've done for so long. Thanks, Jack. Love being here. It's great. Yeah, it's fun to talk about this stuff, especially since we lived it. You lived it for sure. So, Roger, let's take a walk back in time. As I recall, the early 1990s were when separately managed accounts really took off in popularity. Slow at first, but then it really shot out. Where were you then and what was your role in helping to drive that popularity? Also, if you talk about it to our audience uh, about how the things really took off in the advisory space back then, of course, now it's the dominant part of our business. So, Give us a little history lesson. Yeah, it's been so great just to think about the evolution of the separately managed account business and just how far it's come. Luckily, I joined it by mistake, but luckily just joined an area that was on the up and was able to really enjoy the evolution. I, I started in the business in, in 1987. I actually joined out of an internship with my college. And so we started going uh, for a semester working for a financial advisor at uh, Shearson Lehman Brothers. And uh, it just so happened to be that he worked on the same floor as the asset management division mm-hmm. for Shearson Lehman Brothers. So I, I spent the semester there and ended up at being asked to come back full-time. And so I ended up continuing part-time until I finished my college education, but was lucky to have a job once I graduated. And so went back and started working for a financial advisor for Shearson Lehman Brothers and started to learn a lot that way. And luckily, because we were on the same floor as the asset management division, they soon after asked me to join their division. And so I soon became part of Shearson Asset Management, which was the proprietary asset management division for uh, Shearson Lehman Brothers. Roger, if you would, Talk a little bit about, because there's a lot of names that include Shearson and Hutton and Lehman Brothers and Morgan Stanley and on and on. Maybe talk through a little bit about that evolution, just so for our younger audience who now know it as Morgan Stanley Asset Management or whatever. 
talk us through the different parts and where you were and and then also how you got started in the whole SMA thing. Sure. Maybe I'll come back to that. I think I'll, I'll squeeze that in maybe sure. as I'm, I'm going in. Just, I think it'll hopefully make it a little clearer as we're doing it. Yeah. But for now, and it, it is kind of amazing, Jack, because when I think back over my 30-year career, you were going to hear a lot of these different names. I never changed firms technically. <laughs> I've been bought, sold, and traded <laughs> along the way but never actually left a single <laughs> firm. So we will take you through that. But I think- That's funny. It, it, was, oh, it's just, it is an amazing to think of it, how many different name brands and how many different business cards we went through. Yeah, yeah. So as part of that was joining that asset management division, which was proprietary uh, arm for asset management, which was great to me. That was where the coolest guys were, you know, the portfolio managers developing portfolios and they had a separately managed account business. It was typically for higher net worth clients, but they had a business that was really for separately managed accounts. And they were running that business off of, you know, I remember at the time one computer, which, you know, all the information was on the one hard drive of that computer. And that computer was hooked up to a dot matrix printer that sat in the office. And that would, you know, if you remember dot matrix printers, I mean, they would just be loud and noisy. And so you'd have this printer running all day long while you were, I was on this computer. And so the problem with they, which they had was that because all this information was on one hard drive, all the information over time was incorrect. They were not getting good information in and thus they had bad information going out and they had to produce monthly statements that needed to be sent to clients, which were on that dot matrix printer. So they had asked me to help fix that problem. And so we set out to do that, which was just tedious task. I mean, it was now literally taking statements for every single month and reloading every single line item of dividends and interests and buys and sells to make sure that the information was ultimately accurate in that computer. I remember the system it was called NIDS, N-I-D-S back then. I don't even remember what that stood for, but it was the NIDS system, NIDS software. Do you remember NIDS? I don't, but I, I remember you and I had a meeting when I first joined Lightfield, which was 15 years ago. And uh, you were at City at the time. You'll, I'm sure, go through all the names, but City was then in charge of what you were doing. It was you and Joel Brookman. And we came in with our crazy idea for Lightfield multi account management and all the rest of it. And you had a stack of papers on your desk that was probably three feet high. <laughs> and, and you said, you and Brookman both said, said, you know, I love your idea. We are not going to get to it for five years <laughs> because because we're going to go through all this stuff. And there's this stack of papers. I'm not sure it was the same system, but it was the same concept. That's great. That's funny. No, it, it, so that problems never seemed to stop. So it was great. You know, it was just we spent days and nights doing that for a long, long period of time. But eventually we got the information right. We were, you know, back to break even in terms of being able to now produce correct statements and be able to send them out. And I remember going back to the portfolio managers at that time and saying the information's correct, but the next big thing is that we're gonna move this information off of the hard drive and onto the firm's database. And we did that and, and then I was able to say, we never have to worry about this again because it's just gonna feed in every single day and we don't have to put in uh, information. And, and th at that point, they thought I was a genius. It was like, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea about computers, but we got to that point and I quickly became a junior P 
PM, which was really in charge of their separately managed account business at that time. And I would be connected to uh, a couple of their portfolio managers. So I was able to learn about stock selection. And what years is this? I started in 87, which was right before the stock market crashes, the internship. So this was uh, about 90, early 1990s as we, as we were doing this. And so that's how I got my start was uh, was kind of hands-on fixing a computer system that I knew nothing about and ultimately being kind of christened a, a junior portfolio manager to work with some of the PMs and then run the separately managed account. And that's when I started to work with the financial advisors to talk to them about what we're doing in the portfolios and also manage the portfolios. That's great. So that those were early days of SMAs. I'll remind our audience, people didn't know how to spell SMA back then. This was like a whole new concept. Places like Shearson and Hutton and other places all started working on these things and they started to take off. It was a little slow at first, but they took off. Maybe fast forward a little bit after they've, now they've gained some traction. And uh, you start playing around with this thing called a multiple discipline account. When was that? And what did that look like? Because that's a precursor to UMAs, which are so prevalent now. But why don't you talk us through how that evolved? Yeah, that was kind of, a, again, a natural extension in terms of what was happening in the industry as well as what was happening at the firm we were working with. Because you're right that the mergers started to happen. This is Sandy Weil was bringing together lots of different firms. And in every one of those cases, he was not buying them for the asset management division. They were being bought because of the advisors, the brokers that they were really interested in. So what would end up happening is, is they would buy these different firms and, and inherit these brokers, they would, all of them seem to have its own little asset management division as part of it. And they would take these asset management divisions and kind of stick them into a corner where they would put all of these different teams of money managers. This is like going back, I think, from the Shearson days, EF Hutton was one of the next purchases that happened. And that's when, that was in 1988. And that's when, you know, I know recently you had Len uh, Reinhardt on and Jim Seaford, and they talked about the introduction of the consulting business. Well, that was how the consulting business came as part of this. Now, I was on a different side of the business. I was on the proprietary asset management side. They were on the consulting side. But, but in 1988, you had that, which came in Primerica, then bought out Shearson and merged it with Smith Barney in 1993. And ultimately, you know, then there was Solomon Brothers in there. There were a bunch of smaller ones. Travelers ultimately then ended up doing the merger with Citigroup or Citicorp at the time in 1998. And that created ultimately the bringing together of all of these asset management divisions that became ultimately Citigroup Asset Management that I ended up working for. Also, hence the pile of papers, everybody had a different system, right? That didn't, uh, that didn't talk to the other systems, right? It was re really interesting because, because there wasn't a focus on the asset management division. It was really different teams of people and money managers that all sat in basically in the same couple of floors, but in different corners. No one liked each other because it was their view, their style. Sure, they were better. It, no doubt. And, and we had different contracts. So each group had their own contract. We had different marketing material. And so we were all ultimately going to the same advisor, the Smith Barney advisor. But all of these different groups would come with their own contract. And, and the advisors were saying, this doesn't make sense. I don't know who's coming into my office and what styles they have. And so there, there was a lot of dysfunction that happened in that, which created an opportunity that really was. And so that's when we started to 
to think about how can we do something that was different. And, and with that joined, you know, the first thing that we came up with was, was working with the large cap growth manager, which was great and, you know, had good solid names in it, but also was working with a small and mid cap manager who had, you know, 15 high flying names, which was a phenomenal portfolio over the long term was some of the best performance numbers out there. But the short term was just huge volatility. And a lot of advisors and clients, because it was an SMA and because they can see the individual names, not all of them were going to work. And so it was just really hard cosmetically for clients to understand and to stomach that. And so the idea was, why don't we bring these two portfolios together, the stability of a larger cap growth portfolio and the the great performance, but volatility of that smaller mid cap brought them two together and called it an all cap growth portfolio. And that became a third SMA strategy that we started to offer by bringing simply two money managers together. The idea of, you know, an MDA or multiple discipline account for the first time kind of joining together. If you would add the part here about how money started pouring in with these, these ideas. In other words, the fuel behind this is assets really started to crescendo, right? No doubt. I think, you know, as that evolved, because now we had all of these different investment teams, although not talking to each other, but different investment styles that were out there. And now we had this kind of was creating this centralized area of now bringing together these money managers and now being able to, through technology, start to run them as new portfolios. That's where we said we can be actually, this could be our advantage, our biggest disadvantage can turn into our biggest advantage. And we started to create this idea of one marketing material that talked about all of the managers that we had, one contract that could bring it together. And now I was able to start to work with each of these teams, which was really difficult because I was coming from one of the teams and I was looked at as an outsider, had to convince these teams to say, why don't you deliver your portfolio to me And instead of you having to do that within your own group, I'll actually be able to implement that for you and bring it together with some of the other money managers. And we can actually create something that's more powerful than any one single manager here could do. And a few of them did, a lot of them didn't, but a few of them did give me their portfolio and ultimately met with a team out in Seattle, a financial advisor team out in Seattle that they had a local money manager that was closing down And they had said, Roger, if you can create these types of portfolios for us with these managers that you have, we'll move our entire book of business over to you. And so I was able to get those managers, bring them together into a single account now, which was different than kind of the way it was traditionally done, and be able to manage that for them effectively. And that advisor team ended up moving their entire book of business over to us. And that started to catch on because people were starting to realize that there's something unique here. And I think that you think about creativity and, and, and evolutions and inventions. This was nothing new. It was just simply taking a age-old process and making it simpler. Because when you think about this now coming together, you had a, a traditional version, the consulting version, where you would go out and hire third-party money managers You would bring those third-party money managers and say an an advisor was now responsible for choosing, okay, what's going to be the allocation for my client? And then now I have to choose the money managers to do that. And then I have to set up separate accounts for each one of those money managers. So now I have three or four 
different accounts with three different money managers in it. Great concept, right? Makes total sense in terms of doing it. But over time, it started to break down a bit because now all of a sudden it was the responsibility of the advisor to determine if the client needed money or if they were going to add money. Where am I going to move that money? They had to tell their assistant physically to move the money from one account to another account. And it was just a tremendous amount of work. Which names would the, the money managers buy? It wasn't thoughtfully done. It was just done you know, across the entire portfolio of it. And so there was this, this complexity. Conceptually, it was exactly right, doing the right things. But from an operational and implementation standard, it just was very difficult. And so the idea of now having all of these money managers in one place, delivering now a model into a centralized place, we started to be able to say it can happen in a single account. We then had to build the technology to break out the investment styles so that you can see them individually, but in a single account. Now we could think about the values of now we can look at overlap analysis of the different companies in the different portfolios. We can now work with the managers and which names would they like to add to or take out in case they wanted to raise money. And so we started to be able to now add value into integrating good investment intelligence into the separately managed account on behalf of the advisor and the client to help make better decisions. And we were ultimately able to show we were actually creating alpha. We were able to show, you know, if you hired each of these managers individually and you rebalanced them, just say every quarter, what would have happened? Or if you never rebalanced them, or if you did it our way by us now picking and choosing to do this, and we were able to show additional performance by adding the intelligence into the decision-making and creating a simpler process. And so it started to catch on. And and because we had the money managers in-house, they became rock stars because they were out in the to the advisors talking about it. And there was a market downturn. They would be the first one on the all calls that people could listen to. We'd travel around the country. We'd bring them out with us to talk about it. We would then be able to talk about the simplified process, ease of use, and the additional performance. And, and all of a sudden, it just started to catch on like wildfire. It was the funnest time of my career. I mean, we had people working all night, like we had operations, we had technology, we had portfolio managers. We were all in it together. And people working all night long, opening up accounts manually, literally all night long, so that when we came in in the morning, we were able to, you know, invest the next batch of accounts that were coming in. So for our audience, who uh, I'm sure you're catching on to what Roger's talking about, basically the creativity and the ideas that he's talking about were well ahead of the operational wherewithal to pull it off. (laughs) Right. For sure. It's just, this is a good idea. Let's go do it. And then people sold a lot of it. And then we had to figure out how to reconcile accounts and get them on statements and make sure that they were accurate or close enough. (laughs) Talk a little bit, Roger, if you would, about how you went from SMA to MDA to unified managed account. There was an evolution there. You've described a bit of it, but how did that, what's the rough time frame? And, and also I'm kind of curious if you recall any of the, the numbers, because my recollection is the money just started flowing in around all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I remember when we talked about the benefits of the MDA, I think in 2005, we ended up, that's when things started to change because we were kind of in this environment where we were on the same team with the financial advisors in the same firm. 
even though separate from consulting group, there was, you know, in, in a way almost competitive, there was a the consulting group, third party money manager way, and then there was the proprietary MDA and single style way of doing it that way. And in 2005, City ended up selling the asset management business which was Citigroup Asset Management, to Leg Mason. If you remember, they did they did an exchange. This was a time in 2005 when the industry and the regulators were saying there was a conflict of interest to have an asset management company embedded in to where you had advisors because they were selling proprietary money management. And this was a wave at the time. And so Citi ended up selling the asset management business to Leg Mason and in turn got the advisors from Leg Mason to join their firm and there was a swap of it. And so it was interesting. So we were, I was part of that sale. It was another one of those times that I got traded. <laughs> and so it was interesting, but we were now at arm's length because we were a different firm than the advisors that we worked with over all the years. We had built up phenomenal relationships. I still talk to many of the advisors from those days. And so when we got to leg, we ended up saying it was a better idea for us to spin ourselves out as our own company. Instead of being embedded into any one of the asset management arms, we were our standalone, a, a Lake Mason private portfolio group was our brand, and we were 100% owned, but we were our own company at that time and acting on our own so that we could work with other money managers as well and be a neutral party. And this is where we started to really become a, a, a profitable business because we were charging. This is like, this is the creation almost of model delivery in terms of now people delivering models to us, us now implementing and executing. And because we were a separate company, actually started to charge a fee for that work that we were doing. And so at the time, I think when we were sold, we were somewhere around close to $100 million dollars which in today's standards, you know, not that big, but back then was a big number and also becoming an extremely profitable business because of the fees that we were able to charge. And this was, this was coming from the money managers to us to be able to manage that. And so we spun out, became our own company, was a standalone and quickly, very interestingly, because we had such a great reputation at Smith Barney, City came back in and asked to repurchase the Lake Mason <laughs> private portfolio group so that they could bring it back to Smith Barney and now be able to offer it to their advisors. And so we did that, which was fun, you know, really interesting time for me because now I was taking my kind of energies and understandings from portfolio management and technology to now being able to think about how do you build a company, how do you structure a company, and then how do you sell a company? And I learned a lot during that process. And so in 2008, we were sold back to technically City, but was therefore to be included in Smith Barney in their consulting group. So kind of full circle here. And that was literally the last deal in 2008 that City did before everything started to blow up at that time. And then in 2009, Morgan Stanley came in and purchased Smith Barney. So within months, of being acquired, I was now part of Morgan Stanley because they had just acquired Smith Barney, which was, you know, another interesting twist in the career. So talk a little bit about, if you would, you get to Morgan Stanley, I guess they still call it Morgan Stanley Consulting Group. Is that what they... I don't even know anymore. It's Morgan Stanley. Yet. <laughs> so it's their advisory business, which I think is the largest still, right? Yeah. Probably was then. I should check, but I'm pretty sure it still is. 
So talk about the how UMAs came about, I'm assuming they came about there. And then also, I want to make sure we get to talk about what you're doing now because you you haven't stopped doing what you do. So I want to talk about that. So talk a little bit about UMAs and then with what you're doing now. Still with the same company as we were, uh, Lake Mason was purchased by uh, Franklin Templeton. But anyway, we'll get to that. Yeah, so so as, as we became part of Morgan Stanley and the consulting group, because it had been such a game changer in the industry from Smith Barney, really became the focus in terms of the way that, that Morgan Stanley was going to build out their advisory business. And and now part of that was this this overlay function that we had built and created and brought back into the firm. And so they asked me to there to, to focus on that integration of the UMA business. And so this was moving from now only proprietary, which I would consider to be what MDA is, to the next evolution of UMA, which is same basic concept, but now including third-party money managers into this. And that was the the genesis when we did that of now taking that concept of what we we're, we're doing in terms of being able to charge a fee. You could now do that to third-party managers. And what, what year was that? In 2009 is when Morgan purchased Smith Barney. And so this was basically right after that, 2010 and, and onward. And so this is where we started to really be able to charge third-party money managers. It was a new way for a large institution to be able to get better economics and also better service because now you could do overlay of third-party money managers. But it was it was not easy. I mean, just getting firms to agree to deliver their models to you, of which ultimately you had control over, was not an easy feat to get done. But we ended up obviously able to do it and the industry has now become commonplace with it because of the true benefits that when you do have it all in, into one house, you can make much better decisions and be much more fluid to be able to actively manage the accounts. And so building out the UMA at Morgan Stanley also took on the discretionary businesses there. And it, this was a great time too, because it was now we had the ability to work with our research department and, and that dotted line in, into us in terms of now doing research on managers. We were able to work with the top of the house in terms of asset allocation advice and now start to create asset allocation models for the advisory business. Had a team that would be the manager selector and do the analysis on what managers to hire. And then you had the PPG group, which was the implementation arm of all of this. And so you could really create a, a really complex solution from asset allocation, manager selection, uh, manager research into actual portfolios and then effectively manage them. And that was running the discretionary business there. So I had a great time helping build that out and and taking that to the next level. And so that's where I think where UMA came to be. And quickly after, nationally quickly spent years there in 2016, left there to rejoin Lake Mason. So kind of again, full circle, rejoining Lake Mason. And they asked me to head up a group there that thought about what's the future of asset management distribution? What does that look like? How could we use technology to help drive that? And so took on a position there as what we called head of alternative distribution and started to, using the capital of the firm, make investments in fintech companies around the globe and start to use that in ways of of pushing forward fintech and how it could be incorporated into bigger companies. And as we know, then in 2020, Franklin Templeton came in and bought out Leg Mason and Jenny Johnson as the CEO of Franklin Templeton had a huge interest 
in technologies and was already, you know, going down the road of how does she think about this? And so I've been able to help support the evolution of the way Franklin Templeton now is thinking about using technologies through acquisitions, through deals, through partnerships, or through building ways that we can continue to progress what the asset management industry looks like in the future. Sure. So I, I think you may be aware of this, Roger. I know a bunch of folks are at Franklin Templeton, but I wrote an article last December who will be the future Amazon of financial advice. And I identified four firms that I thought would fill that bill. One was Morgan Stanley, another was Edward Jones, another was Empower, and of course, the other was Franklin Templeton. And a lot just to focus on Franklin Templeton, what I've been so impressed with Jenny and the team at Franklin Templeton, you you guys have, are just super smart in terms of what you're acquiring, in terms of technological capabilities, product capabilities. And I know the stuff is not easy, but you're also putting it together in terms of how that all can be part of a value proposition that really is, in my view, among asset managers, is second to none. That all said, why don't you talk about what you're doing now? Because I think what you're working on right now is a perfect example of super smart strategy meets uh, experienced and smart execution. So why don't you talk about O'Shaughnessy and Canvas and some of the other stuff you're doing? Yeah, sure. I think um, so after the, the Franklin acquisition of Leg, Franklin had quickly became one of the largest separately managed account managers in the industry through that acquisition. And their challenge and, and the, the challenge they put out to us really was, it's great that we're one of the largest and in typical Jenny fashion, it was, but that's not good enough. How do we think about what it's going to be? How do we position ourselves as the future of where this industry is going and help push that so that we're not just a player, but we are ultimately helping lead that industry. And so that was the challenge that was put out to us. Much of that, I think, was built around the concept of which people are talking a lot more about now, personalization, customization, and ultimately curation of information was the driving force. And so we weren't thinking about things in terms of a product or a solution. It was much more based around what does this industry start to look like and how can we make sure that we are positioning ourselves to be in the best position to help drive that going forward. Uh, And so as part of that, We made a purchase of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management in January of 2022, of which now I become the became the executive chairman and helping run that business. And to me, this is kind of where the new frontier is going. It's about, yeah, I think kind of cool to think about the evolution of the UMA and the MDA and what we did there. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a great improvement in terms of where we were. I think where we are today is very different from from there. You know, a UMA is extremely relevant in the industry, but that was solving problems for the improvements on what we talked about is the consulting way of hiring four different managers in four different accounts and creating an efficiency. We solved that, right? The industry solved that now and we've yep. moved on. But the clients aren't really interested in that, in my eyes. They're interested in kind of like the way that they're doing everything else in their life. Mm-hmm. This is about me as the customer. And what are you doing for me? And so that idea of personalization and customization, O'Shaughnessy does that. It allows an advisor to build a portfolio, whether it's on their own asset allocations or the firm's allocations or around individual clients' allocations. 
and then start to personalize and customize that to that individual client around restriction management, whether it's they work for a company and they don't want to own it because they have a big position, to ESG types of, of requirements around their beliefs that are there. But they're now choosing that at a much more granular level. And you can actually now start to show performance and attribution based on those decisions. Taxes becoming a much bigger part of the equation. How do you customize the taxes that are around this? And then starting to talk about, well, how do you transition from legacy accounts into this? And the whole idea of of bringing it all together. And so to me, we're shifting from a period of hiring managers and bringing them to clients and telling them how those managers are doing and updating them on that. I think clients are losing interest in that. That's not where what that's exciting them. They want to hear, well, what what did you build for me? And that I became part of those decisions. And now show me an attribution report on each one of those decisions. And let's talk about how they did. And so I think that's the direction we're heading when it comes to giving the tools and Canvas can do this, give the tools in the hands of the advisors and allow them to be able to make the decisions on behalf of their client to make them closer with their client in delivering ultimately what the client wants and then being able to report back to that. And so it's got the ability to include both passive and active management styles. So it's not just direct indexing, it's what we call custom indexing of combining both active and passive and then building in these personalizations and then ultimately creating an index for that client based off of what's important to them, which could be very different from someone else in their family or another client. And I think this is where, you know, what you're doing, Jack, comes into play because now all of a sudden asset location becomes much more important in these types of scenarios to be able to help solve the problems, both taxable and tax deferred money that clients have, as well as family money. Sure. You and I have talked a bit about this, but maybe uh, this gets us to where you see the world going because everything you've described is, I hate the expression, but in your case, it's actually true. It's hyper-personalized for that individual to have a custom index is a whole new concept that I've only recently started hearing about. So there's that. But then investors have different account types, different tax treatments, different tax issues. So it it seems, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I I think you think along the same lines, that taxes become increasingly important across the full household portfolio to improve outcome in terms of accumulation, namely asset location, and income generation. So talk a little bit about where you see the world going. It's, It's going to be, at least in my view, it's going to be taking place over the coming two, three, five years. This is kind of where the world's headed, but please fill us in on your, your point of view. Yeah, no, I, I think it's all about solutions, right? It's all about how do you create solutions and then like it's been done in the past, simplifying that process. Again, these are things that advisors have been working on with their clients in different ways, but it's clunky. They got to go to different places to find different information, to get different ways of doing it. And it, it's not simplified. I almost think about where we're headed here is, is a way to help interpret that and create solutions that become not only independent, but become blended together into a single solution so that it makes sense to the client. And so whether that's different registrations that are going on within a household, making the best decisions across the entire household, and that's where you guys come into play in so much of this, but also different types of solutions. We recently purchased an options trading team to become part of Franklin Templeton, because I think options as a risk reducer is going to become a larger 
participant in solving problems for certain clients? And then how do you figure out how do you integrate that into that single solution for the advisor and client? Thinking about things like, you know, we, we made a, a small investment in a, in a crypto company because to me it was interesting because clients were going out and, and opening up you know, existing clients of many advisors going up and opening up a new account with a new custodian, a crypto custodian, and giving all the information. And it's the first time clients maybe have ever done that to an advisor. And so we made a small investment in a crypto TAMP provider of which we were able to launch and load up some of our crypto portfolios from Franklin Templeton onto that platform as a way of helping advisors. So to me, it's taking the most difficult problems that advisors are facing and helping them simplify and solve those problems to put them in their best position. And and I think that's the way we're just trying to continue to go about these types of solutions. Well, Roger, I've been, uh, we've known each other, dare I say, for 30 or more years. No surprise that you're, you're crushing it again with all the cool new stuff. And uh, not only that, but money tends to follow you wherever you go. The money starts to pour in and you're, you're having great success with O'Shaughnessy and and with uh, Canvas, and congratulations on that. But as we look to, to uh, we've gone a little bit over, but I figured it was worth the uh, going a little bit over. To We had a lot of ground to cover. You had a lot of ground to cover. So thank you for this wonderful conversation. Uh, as we look to wrap up, what are three key takeaways uh, you'd like to share with our audience after um, lessons learned over 30-plus years of innovation? Well, change is always going to happen. That's what I've learned. And just if you don't flow with it, and, you know, if you make the most out of every kind of change or conflict that comes up, you're going to be best suited. Don't resist it. It's going to happen. Go with the flow. And in each of those, there's there's actually opportunities that I've learned. And if you can capitalize on those opportunities, you're going to help propel your, your career. And so to me, it's about le- you lead with passion. Passion is what it's all about. I mean, you don't do things. You don't make decisions. You don't go into jobs because of you know money or prestige or title you're going because you have a passion for what it is and ultimately that outshines everything and and so i've always loved to live with that i always say people over all else if you don't have great smartest people around you i've seen people managers you know hire people that probably maybe was good for them but not necessarily good for the outcome if you hire the smartest brightest people around you in every job function you're going to continue to win and you just continue to, to support everyone because it's all about the people and and then keep it simple, but complex. You know, it's like, again, <laughs> it's simple, but the reality is underneath, it's pretty damn complex. It's, there's a lot of moving parts. There's lots of, you know, you can't just do it um, in a garage. It takes years and lots of mistakes and lots of time and money to build, but getting the best solution, investment solution with technology is the best thing, but clients shouldn't have to feel that. Advisors shouldn't have to feel that it's happening under the hood. So I always say, keep it simple, but complex. Yep. I'm with you. I'm with you. So this has been great. Really enjoyed the conversation. Um, Now my favorite question we do in our podcasts, what do you do outside of work that you're excited or passionate about that people might find interesting or surprising? Well, I think maybe surprising. I'm an introvert at home. I am not a social person. You know, people see me at work and they think, I'm talking to know lots of people. I go home, I'm I'm a total introvert. And so I love to garden. I have my big garden and I just love gardening. I love to read. I'm constantly reading. And I do love to exercise. I do yoga all the time and I like to play hockey in the winters. And so I'm I'm a I'm a homebody. I love to spend time with my family and just 
the diddle around. That's great. All things that I'm, I find interesting and surprising, but uh, very cool. <laughs> very cool. So uh, thanks. So Roger, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for uh, living up to the legends moniker for our audience. If you've uh, enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Roger, thanks again. This has been a real pleasure. Jack, thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by Life Yield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.